Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Jonathan Reyes, Executive Director for the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development for the USCCB, giving a talk entitled, Christ in Civil Society, the Intersection of Higher Education and Social Concerns in the Evangelization of Culture. Mr. Reyes's talk was part of the Challenging the Secular Culture Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. This really is an essay. This is an attempt to say some things that I hope are, are helpful to us based on experience. Uh, and in so doing, uh, I'm going to be testing some ideas. So I hope you'll find some things provocative and helpful, and I'm sure you'll have a lot to complain about. <laughs> the other thing I'd like to say is that I draw heavily on John Henry Newman, and this for three reasons. One, because I love John Henry Newman. I wrote my dissertation on Christopher Dawson, but I'm also a great Newman fan. Secondly, because it's nice to be at a university that actually appreciates Newman, which isn't always the case. Um, but thirdly, because I think Newman provides a particular insight into the question that this conference focuses on, which is Newman was observing the kind of change we're talking about very early on. He was observing it in England. And there's a certain kind of clarity, especially when you have a mind as insightful as Newman's, when something is just beginning to break. And so I think Newman has certain insights for us that in the midst of the clamor of what we, for lack of a better term, call secularization, uh, can sometimes miss, you can sometimes miss the forest for the trees. Whereas I think Newman brings a particular insight and clarity to the question. So I'll be using Newman a lot, as well as Dawson and Pope Benedict XVI, a couple of my heroes. So, to the text. In 2005, Cardinal Ratzinger, on the day before St. John Paul II died, offered the following assessment of the current place of Christianity in modern Western culture. Quote, if Christianity on the one hand has found its most effective form in Europe, it is necessary on the other hand to say that in, a Europe, that in Europe a culture has developed that constitutes the absolutely most radical contradiction not only of Christianity, but of the religious and moral traditions of humanity. This was taking the observation of John Paul II in 2001 that, quote, the reality of a Christian society is now gone, and quote, one step further. For Pope Benedict was asserting that not only had Christian society increasingly diminished, something many people had observed, but that something was replacing it. He therefore described a clash between two cultures, one rooted in Christianity, the other in a new sacred vision of society. Every society has a sacred vision, as Christopher Dawson insisted at the root of every culture is a cult. Such visions are both sacred and spiritual, even when they deny, as does the modern vision, the existence of, say, angels or the gods. According to sociologist Christian Smith, whose treatment of modern sacred vision of sociology is very helpful here, such sacred visions, quote, concern beliefs, longing, and experiences about the greatest and highest good, truth, rightness, value, vitality, and meaning and beauty. The power of such visions is that they're not simply a theory or a conclusion or an argument, but rather part of what Newman called that large outfit of existing thoughts, principles, likings, desires, and hopes which make me what I am. It's from such visions that all cultures form their answers to those most human questions. What am I for? What are human beings for? 
How do I know if a particular action is a good one or a bad one? In answering these questions, a society is providing the grounding for answering secondary questions. What should our polity be? How organize our contracts and financial transactions? How share and distribute the goods of the earth? How ought I to treat others? Even what constitutes appropriate manners and entertainment? In other words, to substitute one sacred vision for another is to change an entire culture. This includes the rewriting of laws, altering institutions, teaching a different moral vision, and rewriting the past. To understand why a society has changed its view of, say, politics, economics, entertainment, marriage, and its own historical narrative, we would do well, therefore, to attempt to understand the deeper change in the spiritual vision that animates and guides it. This is not a new observation, and while there are considered differences in defining what constitutes the modern sacred vision of the West, I think in two things most accounts agree. First, there's been a fundamental change in the notion of what a human being is. Second, and following from this, there's a new way of ordering social relations that follows from this. In other words, there's a new spiritual, social, and political project for the human race. I think sometimes we talk about relativism as it's just anything goes. It's only a piece of the question, because the kind of relativism we deal with actually has a project associated with it. There's a way the world is still ought to be. Again, Christian Smith's account is helpful. Although he's confining his observation to the field of sociology, his definition may be applied more broadly as a rough summary of the ethos of the day. American sociology, he writes, is at heart committed to the visionary project of, and here's his definition, realizing the emancipation, equality, and moral affirmation of all human beings as autonomous, self-directing, individual agents who should be out to live their lives as they personally so desire by constructing their own favorite identities, entering and exiting relationships as they choose, and equally enjoying the gratification of experiential, material, and bodily pleasures." Christian Smith calls this a sacred project, something, quote, set apart from the profane, and here's the key line, and forbidden to be violated. End quote. So despite a multiplicity of private beliefs and commitments, there exists, at least among much, of our, among much of our leadership and thought-forming class, a sacred project. It must be said of this project that its commitment to human freedom and material justice can bring many goods. But at the deepest level, it runs contrary to the Christian vision, and this in three ways. It denies that human beings are fundamentally relational, it relativizes most, but not all, important moral truths, and it excludes transcendent goods from the vision of the human good. This denial of transcendent goods has serious consequences for humanity because it aims at the wrong end. This is the one peculiar and characteristic sin of the world, Newman writes, that whereas God would have us live for the life to come, the world would make us live for this life. And consequently, all that it does becomes evil because directed to a wrong end." end quote. Furthermore, to the extent that the turn to this worldly ends takes on a religious hue, which it does, it can in fact look like Christianity while fundamentally undermining it. Again from Newman, in every age of Christianity there has been what may be called a religion of the world, which so far imitates the one true religion as to deceive the unstable and unwary. The world does not oppose religion as such. I may say it never has opposed it. 
In particular, it has in all ages acknowledged in one sense or other the gospel of Christ, fastened on one or other of its characteristics, and professed to embody this in its practice. Well, by neglecting the other parts of the holy doctrine, it has in fact distorted and corrupted even that portion of it which it has exclusively put forward, and so has contrived to explain away the whole. For he who cultivates only one precept of the gospel to the exclusion of the rest, in reality attends to no part at all. It should not surprise us that the gradual displacement of Christianity by a new religion of the world, by a new sacred vision, has led to the increasing marginalization of the institutional church as well. The church's voice is increasingly dismissed and occasionally condemned for being on the wrong side of history and even on some issues as being viewed as the enemy of the human good. It's worth noting this is a recent development. For some time in the U.S., the Catholic Church was a welcome partner of the nation, a partner that helped make good citizens, provided useful charitable works, and was welcome to speak freely in the public square, offering moral judgments on and making practical recommendations for the ordering of society. When a society is open to this input from the church, the church has a genuine duty to use its voice to strengthen the social order and deepen its commitment to the common good. This can be a sign of its health. Along with such Protestant voices as Martin Luther King Jr., for example, were many Catholic voices. And in some issues, for example, the protection of workers' rights and the most vulnerable human lives, Catholic voices have led. But this is changing. And this change of social position of the church comes with a temptation that I would like to consider. Namely, the temptation to view the marginalization of the church as a sign that the church is no longer capable of carrying out its mission to the world. And I'm going to try to develop this. That because it's marginalized, it can no longer be a leaven for society. The assumption often implicit in this view is that relevance to the wider culture is the criterion by which the church is to be judged with respect to its mission to advance the kingdom of God. The question of how the church is doing subtly becomes a question of how is it perceived by outsiders, how effective is it at influencing public affairs, how often is it consulted on national issues? The favorability rating of the Pope? The size and influence of its institutions and the like? When viewed in this way, it would seem that in order for the church to advance the kingdom, it must remain relevant to the wider culture on that culture's own terms. It must in some sense be acceptable in order to be heard. Now, relevance is indeed a good thing, but when made the central criterion of judging the church's effectiveness in carrying out its mission, it marks a fundamental and very dangerous misunderstanding of the church and its mission to the world. For example, such a view risks reducing the church to an instrument for social advancement. This was the concern of then Cardinal Ratzinger in 1991 when he wrote, quote, the church or the churches must not allow themselves to be downgraded to a mere means for making society moral, as the liberal state wished. Still less should they want to justify themselves through the usefulness of their social works. The more the church aims directly at what in her ought to be something of itself extraneous, so to speak, the more she will fail in this attempt. 
It is typical that in the church today, the more she understands herself first and foremost as an institute for social progress, the more the social vocations dry up." End quote. In short, the marginalization of the church can tempt us, imperceptibly perhaps, to think of the church as not very different from, say, the Red Cross or a local school, both of which help those in need and hopefully make for better citizens. But this is to miss the fundamental reality of what the church is. The church is not reducible to a voluntary association that occupies a particular niche in civil society and justifies its participation insofar as it accomplishes social goods. It is rather the unique community of the recreated human race, saved from death and slavery, and commissioned to be the vehicle for the salvation of the world. Only when it's true to this identity can it be truly relevant to the world. Even non-Christians, such as noted Marxists Horkheimer and Adorno, have observed that when the church, quote, brackets off dogma, what it says has no validity, end quote. There's a Marxist making that. Its dogma may be unwelcome, but only insofar as it is faithful to this dogma does the church really have anything worth saying to the world. In other words, relevance does not require acceptance. What then should the church do at this time when it's losing relevance or acceptance? In the words of Cardinal Ratzinger, quote, she should truly be herself for once. She must first do decisively what is her very own. She must fulfill the task in which her identity is based, to make God known and to proclaim the kingdom, end quote. I would note that Pope Francis agrees. Let me offer one example. In 2007, the bishops of Latin America issued a document on the mission of the church that's named for the city in which it was adopted, Aparecida. Then Bishop Bergoglio served as the chief editor of the document. At a key moment in the drafting process, he intervened to ensure that an articulation of the church's true mission was placed in the very first section of the document and was meant to color the rest of the whole document. This is the piece he insisted was right up front in the Zaparecido document, which is very long. Quote, here lies the fundamental challenge that we face, to show the church's capacity to promote and form disciples and missionaries who respond to the calling received and to communicate everywhere in an outpouring of gratitude and joy the gift of the encounter with Jesus Christ. We have no other treasure but that. We have no other happiness no other priority but to be instruments of the Spirit of God as church so that Jesus Christ may be known, followed, loved, adored, announced, and communicated to all despite difficulties and resistances. This is the best service that the church has to offer people and nations." End quote. Even in the midst of opposition, one might even suggest especially then, the church is only truly at the service of the world when it's making Jesus Christ known in love. I think, I suspect, the temptation to value the church based on its acceptance by the world or by its relevance is sometimes rooted in a mistaken assumption about the place of the church in human history. It might be better identified as a mood or a stance that is rarely explicitly acknowledged. This mood is characterized by a fundamental sense that the real story of the human race centers on what might be called the secular, that which is outside of the church. Let me be clear that I'm not at this point making any judgment as to the value of the secular or, God forbid, entering into a consideration of the two planes theory of history. 
I'm simply noting something that St. Augustine noted, namely that Christians in every age can be tempted to view what is going on in the realm of the city of man as more important than what is going on in the city of God. That the affairs of governments, elections, judicial appointments, cultural institutions, and what goes on in the media, for example, are what really matters, and that the church is simply one of many players in this broader secular story, a player that is sometimes useful, but always on the outside looking in. If this is one's view of history, then it makes strategic sense that one would look for ways to have the church get a seat at the table again, or influence public opinion and so validate itself, and thus to be a part of what is really going on. Let me clarify, I'm not against the church having influence. It says its primary end that this becomes problematic. Such a strategy can be rooted in high motives. For example, the desire to see that the church offers unique gifts to the secular world for the sake of humanity. There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to impact the world. In fact, this is built into the Christian mission. The danger comes from the mood or stance that would see the public square as primary and the internal life of the Christian people as secondary or simply at the service of the broader sacred project. And because the broader sacred project of our day is incompatible with Christianity, the temptation can be to make the Christian vision fit it, rather than convert it. What you see depends on where you stand. If we're to respond to the current cultural challenge well, we have to see clearly, and this means we have to have the proper stance toward the world. So we must begin by seeing the history of the world not as centered on the city of man, but rather as centered in the city of God. We need to see with Augustine that the city of man is ephemeral and unstable, kingdoms rise and fall, that the real story, the place that most matters in the drama of the human race is the church, because where Christ is, that is the center. To see things from this perspective is also to see the power of individual Christians, even in small numbers, to make a difference in the course of human affairs to have a real and lasting impact on the world. In the words of Christopher Dawson, to the Christian, the hidden principle of the life of culture and the fate of nations and civilizations must always be found in the heart of man and in the hand of God. To Christians, the mystery of history is not completely dark, since it is a veil which only partially conceals the creative activity of spiritual forces in the operation of spiritual laws. For the great cultural changes and the historic revolutions that decide the fate of nations or the character of an age are the cumulative result of a number of spiritual decisions, the faith and insight or the refusal and blindness of individuals. No one can put his finger on the ultimate spiritual act which tilts the balance and makes the external order of society assume a new form. In this sense, we may adopt Burke's saying, and assert that the prayer of some unknown Christian or some unrecognized and unmitted, unadmitted act of spiritual surrender may change the face of the world. It's important to remember this, especially in the present moment, as there's another risk to viewing the church from the perspective of influence or lack thereof on the wider culture, namely discouragement. When simply considered from a sociological perspective, the story of the influence of the church in the West can be very discouraging. And while one reaction to this may be to seek acceptance from the wider world through proving our usefulness to it, another can be to simply give up on that world altogether, to curse the darkness, so to speak, and let the wider culture run its course to destruction, to adopt a stance of ironic detachment from which we develop the habit of mocking the foolishness of this present age. 
But this too is denied the to deny the church's mission and also constitutes a failure. The church cannot abandon, nor can she despise the world that Christ loves. How then to pursue the difficult task in the current moment? The church, according to Benedict XVI, must, quote, convince. For it is only by convincing that she opens space for what has been entrusted to her. She must prepare space for the divine, not through power, but through spirit. Not through institutional strength, but through witness, through love, life, and suffering, end quote. The church pursues her mission by persuasion, not coercion or institutional strength. The reference to institutions is particularly provocative in the American context. Catholics have built and continue to maintain a vast network of institutions in healthcare and all levels of education and charitable work, both domestic and international, just to name a few. But if Benedict is right, relying on these institutions as the means for addressing the wider cultural shift that is taking place is not enough. He does not elaborate on why this is true, but our current conversations within the church about the Catholic identity of our institutions, the sustainability of our Catholic schools, the offering of health care benefits for employees of Catholic institutions and what this means legally and morally, the types of funding sources for our various organizations, all these conversations, among others, are perhaps evidence that Ratzinger's observation deserves our deeper consideration. Our institutions are the source of a great deal of human good in the wider world. I can testify to this personally. I've gone all over the world and seen them. I've been amazed at things the church does throughout the world and, frankly, humbled by the people who do it. Still, it's fair to ask how effective they are as the primary means of, commuting, of communicating the dogmatic truth of the gospel. Thus, a strategy that makes the maintenance of our current institutions the priority, which may have worked at some time in the past, I suspect is insufficient. What is needed in addition to, say, maintenance mode, is a kind of creative apostolic vision that sees beyond our current forms. And I think this is where we need to have some sophisticated conversations. If not the power of institutions, or just power in general, what then of the other means that Benedict mentions? Of witness, of love, of life, and of suffering? I wish to offer a few observations from my own experience in various spheres of Catholic ministry, both inside and outside the formal structures of the church and at the local and national level, and international, actually. The first thing I would note is that many young people, in my experience, are susceptible to the Christian story of the world when presented in its fullness. While the church's moral teaching or natural law is a difficult place to start in discussing the church with young people for any number of reasons, and in spite of the omnipresence of the new sacred project in the media, my experience is that many young people are quite eager for the Christian narrative of the world. I've found that many young people are quite taken by a straightforward and unembarrassed account of reality, one in which human beings are the creation of a loving God, that very on, early on humanity joined a demonic rebellion against their creator and now finds itself in the midst of a great spiritual batter, battle that includes not just mere flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, that Christ's dying and rising marks the creation of a resistance movement for the salvation of the human race, in the midst of a world that in some real way remains in the power of the evil one, and that Christ has promised after this time of mercy to return and establish his kingdom in its fullness. Many young people I have spoken to are longing not just for a moral code, a philosophy of life, 
or just any, quote, cause that is bigger than themselves, end quote, as it is often put. What they're longing for is a view of reality that makes sense of their lives, confirms their experience of life, and speaks to their deepest longings. I think it's worth noting that epic narratives are in fact quite common in modern culture, especially youth culture. I think it's interesting that most popular video games are not the ones that involve endless repetition, but the ones that have a story built into them. They're epic fantasies in which the player has a chance of being the hero or anti-hero, as the case may be. The Lord of Rings trilogy is captivating and has been since its first publication, not only because it's a good story, but perhaps also because it's a grand narrative that in some ways is an analogy for reality itself. The rise of fantasy fiction in general among young people, with great wars between good and evil, although these categories are often muddled, is suggestive that a purely materialistic view of the world, even when cast in grand utopian political schemes, is not a satisfying account of reality to many young people. After all, a purely materialistic view of human affairs, no matter how utopian, leads in the long run not to deeper engagement with life, but to what Benedict XVI calls lethal boredom. The gospel story has not lost its potency, even if some of the means of making Christian truth comprehensible, such as arguments from natural law or even excellent historical apologetics like the work of David Bentley Hart, are being increasingly rejected out of hand. We would do well then, I think, to continue to tell the Christian story in its full, creation, sin, angels, demons, miracles, divine revelation, and all, with prudence, but also with unapologetic clarity. It has also been my experience that concrete manifestations of love and suffering, as Benedict XVI put it, can also be very effective means of advancing the gospel. I wish to conclude with a consideration of one such example from many that I've seen. Uh, truth be told, I helped found it, so that's why I'm going to use it. In 2010, Catholic Charities of Denver founded a program for mission and service called Christ in the City. It selects college students from around the country who are willing to give up a year to serve the homeless population in Denver by living in a community in the midst of the city itself near near where many of those who are homeless spend their time. It explicitly combines, explicitly combines, the church's mission to share the encounter with Jesus, as Aparecida put it, with its mission to serve Christ and the poor. This is accomplished by befriending people who are homeless, spending time with them every day, getting to know them personally, and affirming their dignity. How this is accomplished is best described in an article from a local online news source. Allow me to read a portion of it. This is from the article. The Christ in the City missionaries found Bill on the 16th Street Mall nine months ago. He was drinking every day. They would stop and talk to me, he says. A slight man, he wears wire rim glasses and a cap. Without fail, if I was there, I would see them. He pauses, takes a bite from his plate. Well, I've had people make a little effort, but I've never had anyone come every day that I could count on. Recently, Bill says a car hit him as he was crossing the street. The collision put him in the hospital for three weeks. They'd come by to see me every day and pray for me, he says. When I started getting better, they still came by. They helped me get my life back spiritually, even physically. He's not had a drink, he says, in five months. He's living at Samaritan House Shelter, working toward a job in his own place. Early next month, he will see his sister from Indiana for the first time in a year and a half. They'll just take you on a human basis, Bill says. 
people who've been in the position I was in, we just don't have many people who can talk to, we can talk to on a normal level. He's quiet. This lunch is wonderful, he says in a soft voice as he sits on the grass eating, but that doesn't even touch what they've done for me. I got a lot of my dignity back from them. I don't know how to put into words how thankful I am." End quote. In my travels across the country and internationally, I've seen a number of such programs. Something that always stands out to me is the joy and the commitment of the people who are actually doing the work. These are people who have always made a significant sacrifice in order to do this work and yet seem all the happier for having done so. Like Dorothy Day and others, they're convinced that only by a renunciation of self for the sake of love of others can they be an effective witness. They also radiate joy. And as those of you who have read Dorothy Day's diary know, this is joy amidst real material and personal hardship. This is what I take Pope Benedict to mean by the witness of love and suffering. And it is effective. I've spoken to many people outside the program who've encountered Christ through the witness of the missionaries themselves. So people who aren't directly served, they just see it and go, Where, why do these young people do what they do? What is going on? It's a dynamic not unlike that experienced by Malcolm Muggeridge in his encounter with Mother Teresa. As that great sage Julian the Apostate, the enemy of Christianity, conceded, quote, it is the Christians' philanthropy towards strangers, the care they take of the graves of the dead, and the affected sanctity with which they conduct their lives that have done most to spread their atheism." End quote. I think there's a principle to be learned from this, one that Newman has expressed well. The truth has been upheld in the world not as a system, not by books, not by argument, nor by temporal power, but by the personal influence of such men who are at once the teachers and patterns of it. Men persuade themselves with little difficulty to scoff at principles, to ridicule books, to make sport of the names of good men, but they cannot bear their presence. It is holiness embodied in personal form which they cannot steadily confront and bear down, so that the silent conduct of a conscientious man secures for him from beholders a feeling different in kind from any which is created by mere versatile and garrulous reason." End quote. But what difference can such small efforts make on wider cultural trends? Our society and its politics and culture is, after all, a mass society. It would seem any effective response to a broader secular movement would have to be a mass movement. There's something to this, but it's worth noting that the gospel rarely has advanced by mass movements. As Pope Benedict reminded us early in his pontificate, we should remember the principle of the mustard seed. We might also look to the history of the early church. The gospel proceeds fundamentally, cor ad corloquitur, from heart speaking to heart. It requires an encounter with the risen Lord and with one another. This means that while we make creative use of the means of mass communication, for example, or social media and Twitter, or large institutional influence, or the political process, that we can never simply rely on these tools. The gospel has no powers of coercion, nor is it a consumer item to be marketed effectively and easily purchased. It's an encounter with a person that changes one's entire way of life. This requires more than good messaging or argument. For as Newman reminds us, quote, 
deductions have no power of persuasion. The heart is commonly reached not through the reason, but through the imagination, by means of direct impressions, by the testimony of facts and events, by history, by description. Persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. Many a man will live and die upon a dogma. No man will be a martyr for a conclusion. No one, I say, will die for his own calculations. He dies for realities." Unquote. And so must we. My final thought is simply this. There's a sense of mystery in the way the Gospel proceeds in the world. The ways of grace are not entirely dark to the Christian, but they're also not perfectly visible. But one thing we do know, and I've seen it, is the power of Christ's light to pierce any darkness. Christ really is victorious. My final quote from Newman, I promise. Ever since Christianity came into the world, it has been, in one sense, going out of it. It is so uncongenial to the human mind. It is so spiritual, and man is so earthly. It is apparently so defenseless, and has so many strong enemies, so many false friends that every age as it comes may be called the last time. It has made great conquests and done great works, but still it has done all as the Apostle says of himself in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. How it is that it is always failing, yet always continuing, God only knows who wills it. And so it is. God indeed wills it. And our task, given God's grace, is to cooperate with his will and make his love known to the world. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.